The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Assuming some of you were here last week, Kevin Griffin was in town. He slept for me. I was visiting my mother-in-law in New Jersey. I heard it was a good program. If you missed it, it should get up on the website soon. All of the talks here at the center get posted on the website that you can download or listen to online. We're right in the middle of an eight-day retreat. Four times a year at least, uh, Common Ground uses a wonderful retreat center run by some Franciscan nuns called Holy Spirit Retreat Center. Maybe some of you know about it uh, on Lake Elysian, a beautiful lake southwest of here. And so we're in the middle of an eight-day retreat. We just came back to teach tonight, and we'll be ending our retreat on um, Monday of Labor Day. So keep that in mind. The next one will be the first weekend in November, then usually over President's Weekend, then usually either over Easter weekend or the last weekend in April, and then again Labor Day. So those four weeks, long, long weekend, mostly have residential retreats. And then Ajahn Chanako, a, a Buddhist monk, offers a retreat in the middle of the summer up in the North Woods, a camping retreat. So that's another option. So we're finishing up a series of talks on, based on Jack Marshall's book, The Wise Heart, and now the last chapter, the last talk on the last chapter. And we're talking about compassion tonight, as you might have guessed from the guided meditation we did. And don't feel like, you know, oh, I can't do compassion practice, I don't know how to do it. You know, even though the instructions I gave at the very end might seem strange, compassion practice or any of the loving-kindness practices, the formal practices that we call the divine abodes, or as Buddha called the divine abodes, practices around friendliness, around compassion. Last week we talked about appreciative joy, or two weeks ago, appreciative joy and uh, equanimity. These are the four qualities of heart, or the four divine abodes, four emotions the Buddha taught are worthy of cultivation, in fact, the only emotions you really need to get by in life. Imagine if we moved through life and the only emotions we had available was either basic friendliness, compassion, appreciative joy, or equanimity. I think things would work pretty smoothly. And that, even that simple question or a reflection like that can be really it makes the practice fun, like to go into the day with that attitude, you know, like a resolve or a challenge. Okay, well, let's see. And then when we are hostile or defensive, you know, we can forgive ourselves. That's compassion. Oh, honey, you're defensive. So the neat thing about these four emotions, they're never far away. We only think they're far away. When we're really identified with anger, kindness or compassion can seem miles away. But the movement is actually very close. Oh, anger really hurts. I care about this anger. See, that's not that far away. When we're really upset, really hostile at the traffic or embarrassed and hitting ourselves, it's actually relatively close to notice how painful that state is and to care about it. And it's like uh, a complete turning of the mind from hating ourselves to caring about the pain of the hate. They're close, but they're just, they have a, like a different gravitational pull. You know, love, whatever particular flavor of love, whether it's compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity or just basic friendliness, it always has this capacity to include. That's how we know what compassion is. Compassion is that quality of heart that allows us to get close to what's difficult, to what's hard to bear, our own pain or the pain of another. So that's 
you don't need like a philosophical or a theoretical description of compassion. Think about it in a very pragmatic way. What actually allows me to be close to what's hard to bear? Whatever it is. I remember a long time ago doing some rock climbing up in uh, Shawanga, it's called, outside of New York City up in, uh, near the Catskills. And we were hiking around later in the day, and we were having a grand old time until we ran into a dog that had met a porcupine a few minutes earlier and had the quills. Maybe you've seen this. Yeah, that's exactly my reaction. You know, like not able to be close to that situation, right? Just wanting to keep on moving. It wasn't my dog, you know, that, you know, that sort of like not my responsibility. And, you know, we were in the middle of the woods. I had all kinds of justifications for just moving on. And uh, now, compassion, even something, I brought that up on, you know, for a reason, because we cringe when we just bring that image to mind. Some, you know, vulnerable animal suffering, and then that feeling of helplessness. But see, compassion isn't just when we know what to do, or when we've got the solution. You know, if I were a vet, and I happened to have my you know, my case with me, but just, you know, knew exactly what to do. You know, tranquilize the beast and pull out my pliers and, you know, then, it, then maybe it would be relatively easy to be compassionate. But there are a lot of suffering we bumped into in the world that we can't do anything about except need it, not be afraid of it. That's all we can do. And so, Instead of, you know, taking a provocative example, like a dog with quills in its snout, we can just do ordinary examples of going home tonight and seeing your partner who's a little stressed. You know, in all the ways, you know, well, that's her life, that's his life. But maybe there's another way we can relax and be close to this person. You know, even though they may be in a difficult place or in a, a fit or, you know, irritable because of the difficulty in their life. Can we, you know, find that heart, that mind that knows how to be close without immediately thinking, I can't be close unless I fix them. You know, if only they do what I told them to do, they wouldn't be suffering and then I'd be able to be close to them. But they don't do what I tell them to do until I, you know, it's almost like we punish. Not that we're, we do this consciously, but in a way, it's intentional that, you know, it's like I punish those who are suffering by removing myself, finding some distance. And if all we did, you know, in the study of compassion is just hold this question, like, what understanding what heart or mind allows me to be close, undescended when I happen to bump up against suffering, my suffering or somebody else's. This is what we were doing with Appreciative Joy. You guys on Wednesday I missed one of the talks in Appreciative Joy because Kevin was here last week. And so it's the same practice with Appreciative Joy. What quality of heart or mind allows us to meet beings that are happy, that are successful, that allows us to be really close and appreciate their goodness, their happiness, their success, or our own success, without dismissing it. Well, you don't deserve to be happy, you know. It's like, uh, I remember Carol Wilson, a wonderful teacher at IMS, at Set Meditation Society, one of the senior Vipassana teachers here in the country. And she tells a story when she was on staff at IMS before she had become a teacher there. This is one of the major Vipassana centers out in Massachusetts. And a lot of young people, staff, you know, were back then in the 70s, a lot of hippie, former hippies. And, uh, and people were falling in and out of love with other staff members all the time. And so Carol was walking one day. She reported this in a talk of hers. And she noticed. Uh, two staff people, 
probably holding hands or something, arms around each other. And, you know, they're have fallen in love, happily in love. And she says to the person she's walking with, it will never last. <laughs> you know, as opposed to a moment of appreciative joy. Now, it, she may be right, you know. It's not that appreciative joy doesn't understand that, that moments of happiness, moments of success come and go. But in this moment, they're happy. And maybe their happiness can be a cause for us to be happy for their happiness. And to really appreciate the joy, the goodness of their happiness, however mundane it might be. Like, you know, some of you have pets, dogs or cats or whatever. You know, and one of the things we like about pets is they're generally really appreciative when they get their meal, right? <laughs> and this is such a simple joy to observe an animal getting fed, even human animals, when they want to be fed. And now we know that, you know, it's going to last for a while and then, you know, it will be over or they'll be full or whatever. But in this moment, there's a simple happiness and we can really let it in. In the same way we can learn to let in simple pain and sorrow and losses that humans or other beings experience. Otherwise, we end up missing most of life. If we don't have a heart that can really be intimate, meet the joys and beauties and successes, if we don't have a heart that can meet the loss and sorrow and pain, well, we've just missed, you know, a lot of life. And then the heart that can meet all of the ordinary experiences, that basic friendliness, metta or loving kindness, that's just sort of the general aspect of the mind when it's just ordinary. We're not dismissive of ordinary because it's not intensely bad or intensely good. We're friendly with it. We're willing to connect with it. You know, it's like how many times have we really been there when we open doors or when we brush our teeth or when we put our shoes away? You know, these are the ordinary moments. We can do these things in a friendly way. So the practice of the heart, really, is the practice of mindfulness. It's all about learning about the mind that can connect, the mind that can really show up in a fresh and alive way. So much of the time, I'm sure you know, have realized we're on automatic pilot. We're not really showing up kind of lost in our various ways of being distracted, disconnected. Sometimes we practice being disconnected with strong, fixed views about things. Like with ordinary experience, it's the strong, fixed view that it doesn't matter because it's just, you know, I'm just brushing my teeth, I'm just driving home. And somehow we feel justified in not being present in our life, radically alive in our life. Like, I'm saving myself later, and I'll be alive then. But I don't need to be alive now, it's just driving home. And the same thing, like with suffering, we justify not being present because if it's somebody else, we generally think they deserve it. They must have done something bad. They probably, you know, misbehaved and squandered their money, and that's why they're in poverty. Or, you know, they probably ate the wrong food, that's why they have cancer. Or we're frightened by it. And so we disconnect because their suffering reminds us that we're, I'm also vulnerable to suffering and I don't know when it's going to show up. So we're closing ourselves off to that too. We close ourselves off to so much beauty because <clears throat> why do we do that? <laughs> why do we close ourselves off? <clears throat> I think it's like we feel, when we see something beautiful, somebody happy, we feel like uh, we're not getting our share. Here it is. I mean, the amazing thing is we have a moment that could be the cause of real happiness for us, just appreciating somebody else's happiness, and we miss that opportunity because we haven't had the causes for happiness. Here it is. There's a cause for happiness right here in our life, but because we feel treated, we we don't want to be happy for that with that experience because we're kind of identified with the feeling of being cheated. 
of not having had enough, not being given enough in our lives. And in a weird, neurotic way, we prefer the sense of self, you know, that, oh, poor me, or some version of that, because it's just that simple experience of appreciating plants. I mean, we can appreciate all kinds of things. We don't need big things to appreciate. Little things. So we want to understand that, as I mentioned this first week, talking about this chapter, that these qualities of the heart, compassion, basic friendliness, joy, appreciative joy, equanimity, these are both a means but also an expression of freedom. This is how freedom looks. This is what freedom looks like. Because it's these emotions, these qualities of heart that allows us to be really fully alive in our lives, not having to be disconnected from anything. So there's really two basic views about spiritual life. One is some view of transcendence, like God, life is messy, and uh, i got to get out of here. You know, it's just nothing seems to work very well. I had one of my first teachers, Swami Sachidananda, this Indian teacher. Uh, I guess it's an old, I think it's probably from all cultures, but it's like the curly tail of a pig or the curly hair of a, a dog with curly hair. You know, no matter how many times you straighten it out, it just gets curly again. And uh, this is like life. You know, no matter what we do to control things, to straighten things out, no matter how many times we clean our house, it gets messy again. Even if you don't do anything, the dust, the spiders, you know, things get messy. It's really just in the fabric. So given that this is the kind of world we live in, you see that any spiritual notion of transcendence is a kind of both idealism and hatred. It's like life is to be hated, is to be rejected in favor of heaven, in favor of transcending the messiness and getting somewhere that's not like this. And so we have signed up for a life of pushing away this and striving to get something else. It's endlessly exhausting. And we get things like, you know, people wanting to live in gated communities or be around people who are a lot like them because they don't want to be threatened by people who aren't like them. And we, more and more, we close ourselves off. We have to put people who are older somewhere else because they remind us of something. What is it that they remind us of? You know? or people who have strong, intense emotions or mental illness, you know, we need to put them somewhere. So we, basically, we have to separate ourselves from life, and we even have to separate ourselves from our own minds, because our own minds are messy. So we stay distracted. You know, we're constantly filling our lives up with entertainment or some obsession, so we're not actually feeling what we feel aware of our body, aware of our mind. So either we have some notion that the, the sort of ultimate experience is transcendence, getting the hell out of here, or we have a different view of spiritual life, which is somehow uncovering a wisdom, a love, that isn't afraid of life being the way that it is, doesn't actually have a problem with life being the way that it is. The ups or the downs, the flat times, or the even times. It knows how to be alive and happy and free no matter the condition. So in Buddhism we talk a lot about the unconditioned, realizing the unconditioned, realizing the heart, the mind, 
that isn't dependent on conditions being a particular way. Now, isn't that the kind of freedom or happiness we're interested in? Because every other kind of happiness is fragile. Like every once in a while when conditions arise in our lives that are just right, you know, that perfect way, and we're around people who like us and our body feels good, we're healthy, and we haven't read about the other people who are suffering, so we have some immunity from that, and we can be really happy. But that happiness is dependent on being ignorant. And we may not realize, but it takes a lot of work to be ignorant. We have to constantly disconnect. It's not enough to disconnect from life or the world once, because it keeps showing up. We have to keep closing off, shutting down, distracting ourselves. Otherwise, the inconvenient truth creeps back in, and we see suffering, or we see things that we don't know how to be with, that are threatening in one way or another, like somebody happier than us, somebody who has more than us. You can just imagine like living in a way where it isn't a problem for people to have more success than us, to be better looking than us, to be smarter than us, be more spiritually advanced than us, or being around people who are worse off than us in any way, or being around people who are the same. Like, we're okay with all of that. So then our happiness can't be a matter of comparison. There was a study, I think it was done at Harvard, I won't remember it exactly, but basically they gave some grad students there an option, like you could have $300,000, but everybody else would also have a lot of money, or you could have $40,000, but everybody else would have half what you have. And people chose the relative, you know, to have twice as much as everybody else, even though in absolute terms they had a lot less. You know, that's because they went to Harvard, they're smart. But that's really what we want. You know, it's like a lot of our happiness is that kind of comparative happiness, where at least, you know, I don't have cancer, you know, or at least I don't live in, you know, and then you're filling the blank. You know, at least I wasn't drafted and have to go to Afghanistan or, you know, whatever we might be thinking. And we feel, and in the same way we torture ourselves, you know, I wish I, you know, I had this with this other, with this other person had. So we'd be free of all of that, like the happiness wouldn't be, have anything to do with anybody else, because it's an unconditioned happiness or freedom. And so, compassion and this basic friendliness and appreciative joy and equanimity. This is why it's really no different than wisdom, because we're uncovering quality or uh, aspects of the heart, a movement of the heart or a freedom of the heart that's not conditioned, it's unconditioned. That's why in Buddhism we talk about love being immeasurable or unbounded exalted, because it doesn't have a limit. This kind of freedom, this kind of appreciative joy or compassion, it doesn't run out because it's not demanding, it's not dependent on things getting better. Now normally when we're what we consider to be compassionate, it only works for a while and then we get tired or we get um, overwhelmed because the person isn't getting better or the situation isn't getting better. Think about how many people have gotten involved in social justice issues and then get burnt out because the world didn't become perfect. <laughs> you see that their movement, their heart energy, their energy was all about, I'll do this because I'll make a difference. But sometimes we can't make a difference or we make a difference because but things just don't get as bad as they would have otherwise gotten. So we've made a difference, but still there's a lot of suffering. 
Now, if it's real compassion, the energy doesn't run out because the compassion isn't about the condition. The compassion is coming from this immeasurable place, this undefined place. That it doesn't, uh, it isn't about me wanting something to happen. It's just what the heart does when it's free when it's free of its views, like its views of suffering being bad or joy being good. And this is the thing that we have to just begin to see. It's hard to trust this initially. That's why it's important to start with little experiences, little experiences of connecting with something beautiful, little experiences connecting with something painful. And just learn to trust, see what your heart does when you, you're just around somebody. Let's say you're just sitting somewhere and you notice somebody, you don't even need to interact with them, they're across the room, and you just get the sense either that they're really happy or that they're suffering, something's gone wrong in their life. And there in that anonymous way, you just let it touch your heart. And just notice in that relative safety, because you don't know the person, you have no obligation, in that relative safety, in that simple situation, just notice how your heart is willing to be touched by their happiness that you imagine or their suffering that you imagine. And move. And how that movement of your heart doesn't run out. It actually begins to expand. Like if you really, you see that person and maybe they just look really stressed out, really like they're in a difficult place. And you're really there and you'll notice that after a while you're able to include more and more people. You start seeing other people and you bet well, they probably don't have a perfect life either. They probably have bodies that ache and minds that betray them and friends that are irritating. And I can care about them too. And I also have that kind of life. And I care about this life. And you see, you'll just, in that very ordinary way, you'll see this immeasurable quality that it actually begins to build on itself. It gains energy, noticing these, we could call them the universal compassion or the universal kindness or the universal joy, universal equanimity. There is no limit. When they get unleashed, they tend to grow and expand. As opposed to when our compassion is a very personal thing, like I always wanted to be a compassionate person. My friends respect people who are compassionate. I'm going to really, and then it's more like an imitation. And then it runs out. It's like, I've got to get out of this situation because I've had it, you know? And I don't want to lose it because then I'll, I'll blow my cover. I won't look like a compassionate person. So I need to get out of this situation and get home, you know, so I can have my potato chips and whatever. Call my friend and complain. You know that, and it's the same thing with being like uh, really magnanimous about somebody's success and really kind of, oh, that's so great, I'm so happy for you. You know, but then later, you know, we're not so happy. Why do good things always happen to other people? So this is the thing. It won't work through imitation. It only works by us experimenting in simple, safe ways and really gaining confidence and in this inherent capacity. This doesn't just this isn't just for saints. The difference between a saint and an ordinary person like us is a saint is somebody who's discovered this and has sort of set it in motion through practice. Practice of remembering the capacity for compassion, remembering the capacity for appreciative joy, for basic friendliness, for equanimity. And we kind of call on it. But we have to call on it in places where initially it's relatively safe. Until our confidence is really strong. And then where we believe that we can connect with any joy that comes our way, any suffering that comes our way. I'll just end with this story. Uh, a long-time community member and friend of mine, this is a long time ago, she was a long-time community member and then she uh, was out in Washington State. Uh, she was a professor there for a while and then she moved back to the Twin Cities. But when she was out there, 
she was part of a, in her town, there was a little Dharma community where they sat together and it was at the time of 9-11 that night. So the community just spontaneously gathered at their little meditation hall that they had in town and they were practicing and she thought it would be a good idea because, you know, she had a sense of how much confusion, how much anger, how much uncertainty. I was out of the country on retreat myself, so I was kind of oblivious to all of this. I was in Burma at the time. So I don't, but I get a sense of, like, must have been a pretty big deal, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so she goes, she sits, and she knew a little bit about this Tibetan practice of Tonglin, where you, you know, and it's not just the Tibetan practice, just some things human beings come to, this confidence of breathing in, taking in, all of the misery, all of the confusion, all of the uncertainty, and giving away your stability, giving away your good wishes, your love. So she started doing that. And she had been practicing for a while. So she really, you know, using her sensitivity and her imagination, really brought it in, except that it was too much, you know. And this is like this, uh, an arrogance a little bit, or overconfidence, but we have to understand that uh, that we still believe that conditions matter, like our safety matters. So when we really open up, you like, you take any one of us, except for the saints in the room, but all the rest of us, you can imagine, you could put us in any number of situations and we would not be very saintly, right? The situations bring out a lot of fear a lot of meanness, a lot of hostility, a lot of shutting down, a lot of backbiting, right? So we have to, you know, initially as a practitioner, one of the, the skills we need is as much as we can, and we can always control our conditions, but when we can, to be in conditions where we find success, opening to suffering, success, opening to joy, opening to the ordinary mo moment in a way that's enlivening. Because what we want to do is we want to build the confidence that opening to life is enlivening. We don't want to reinforce the experience of opening to life is deadening or scary or the cause for reacting. And that's a little bit what we do. We hear a teaching like this and then we say, okay, you know, I'm going to open to all the suffering in the world. I'm going to go home to my mother, who I'm totally enmeshed with, who's got a lot of suffering, and I'm going to come in with my heart, all my defenses, defenses down, and it won't work because it's such a setup for those old patterns to arise. And then we'll feel like a failure and we'll reject the whole package. I guess the Buddha didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and in a way, we want that to happen because then we're off the hook. Then we don't have to practice because it doesn't work. You know, I knew it didn't work. <laughs> really, that, that's, ende that's endemic in our culture. It's like we kind of like spiritual teaching, but we like holding on to the idea it doesn't really work. That way we get to play this sort of, like, on the fence. We don't really have to be committed. But once we find that it really works, then this confidence begins to build. Then we really get frightened. Because then we realize that we've decided that instead of our life being about me, it's about letting go, opening up. And we're still going to get, I mean, we're doing that because we think it's delivered. But it's a real radical letting go of everything we've been taught. Because everything we've been taught is about, yeah, be nice, be kind, be compassionate, but take care of yourself, you know. Make sure you have enough in the bank, you know, or whatever. And this, the thing about this practice, where it leads, if we do it gradually, not in an arrogant way, but little by little, letting the juice, the aliveness of the practice take us forward, not a should, like I should be compassionate, I should be kind. I should be joyful when we don't feel joyful. But our success takes us forward. Then eventually we'll let go of everything. We become literally a creature of the world. And this is why in like later schools of Buddhism there was such an emphasis on 
compassion or living for the benefit of others because we lose that limited motivation of living for the benefit of ourselves. It's just not adequate for the happiness that can be realized. We become much more happy when our life is about taking care of everybody, including ourselves. So we don't neglect ourselves. And in a way, we have sort of a primary responsibility for this life because we're really close to it. But ultimately, it's not favored over anybody else. Now that we can only imagine intellectually. But we can get there little by little by uncovering these immeasurable forces of love and compassion and joy and equanimity. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people stories from your own life, what you've learned about compassion and these other flavors of love, questions that you have. Yeah, Gabriel. Tom Lin. being unjust, they're reacting 
to what they see as injustice. You know? There's a lot of people, you know, just one of the classic things these days is, you know, a, a real feeling like the government has betrayed uh, the common folk by squandering the wealth of the nation, by giving it away in ways that don't ultimately help people and are bankrupting rupting the country. So just a, but, and, you know, it's easy for someone to dismiss that sense of betrayal, but feel very good about their sense of betrayal. And we're doing this over and over again, perpetuating the ignorance, because we don't understand the importance of the means. Like, where are we coming from? What is the intention in the mind? If they can justify throwing somebody out of their heart, maybe we should think twice before justifying throwing somebody out of our heart, not understanding them. And I know your, your point, I think, is important because people are afraid I won't ask them. You know, if I include, if I care, it will get too messy and I won't know how to act. But I'm not sure that's our actual experience. When we practice taking some time to feel what we feel, and to feel the confusion, and to feel the rage, and to feel um, you know, whatever other emotions that we happen to feel as we let in all the data, and just let it touch our heart, you know, we might find that actually we're more creative, more powerful in our response. But again, I think the important thing is to, to gain the confidence in small ways. It doesn't mean we shouldn't act globally uh, uh, with the really big things going on in the world, but I think we need to gain skill in the little injustices that we experience in our lives. Yeah. See your name? Hi, Julia. Two weeks ago, you gave an amazing talk about those four emotions and the issues that I'm seeing, by the way. Um, and just really, it has changed my life. That talk you gave was pretty amazing. Just choosing compassion as opposed to choosing judgment. That's one of my weaknesses. And um, one of the women I work with, her brother committed suicide a week and a half ago, and I've been like trying to help out at the office and stuff. And she came in yesterday for the first time, and you know, she's I heard she's sick of being hugged and sick of having sad eyes. You know, like you know, looking over this complete despair. And so you know, I just went into her office and talked to her and just. You know, I thought I was willing to fix it. I mean, that's what you talked about earlier. It's like, how can I help? What can I do for you? You know, and I just, I found myself talking too much and um, trying not to have sad eyes. And you know, I'm talking a little bit, but, um, and I left. So I'm like, oh, I said too much. I feel like burdens were, you know, and I thought, no, everything I said was from compassion. And, like, I really felt, and I felt joyful afterwards in a weird way. Like, not because of her sadness, obviously, but I had taken it and I'd seen how sad she was, and I felt this presence to her sadness and let go by the end of it. Of, I don't have to fix this. I can just hear and feel her sadness and be there for her. And so it was interesting just to console myself, not console, but uh, say to myself later, I came from a place of compassion, and so I don't have to judge myself that I maybe try to fix it a little bit, you know. So it is very difficult to do, but it also, I believe that, I mean, I've practiced 20 years ago and stopped for about 20 years, and just recently started here about four or five months ago, and I've noticed I'm happier. I mean, I feel happier, and I know it's directly related to the work I do here, so thank you very much. Oh, thanks for sharing that with us. That's all. Maybe a few more? Yeah, Maria. Yeah, hi. Um, it's something that's been troubling me for a few years, and we were talking about it tonight on this flying. Um, a number of years ago, I was at a Vietnam retreat, and he was taking questions, the data to take the questions. And the young woman who was graduating from college got up and, you know, said, I have this job, I'm teaching in the inner city, I feel like this work is really meaningful, but I'm overwhelmed by it
of the heart, and even as Metsky says, to even trust the heartbreak. Just because the heart's breaking doesn't mean it's damaging. It might be part of the enlivening process. Everything's got to move. There's no room left for rigidity or for sort of um, kind of rigid defenses. And so as things move, as we let the heart be touched by everything, this is the life we're choosing, the heart that's sensitive, tender, raw, exposed, and alive. So in a way we have two choices and we can end here. A heart that's defended and cut off, or a heart that's alive. And everything that that means, you know, that, is, that entails. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two together. Take a few seconds and just tune into the simple love and friendliness in the room now. Happily joining the brother and sisterhood of our shared humanity, living this challenging human life together on this planet at this time. So may our kindness and compassion prevail. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.